Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Today, we talk about why you shouldn't ghost ride your bike across the finish line of a race, some sound nutrition advice, and how many poops it takes to know if you're going to ride well. National champion racer, coach, and performance expert Daniel Matheny from Matheny Endurance joins us on this episode of Stand Up Pedal Action. Today, we've got a special treat for you. Uh, here in the studio, we have Daniel Matheny. I didn't get it right, did I? No, that was pretty that close. Was yeah. Okay, that was pretty close. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Everybody says it a little bit different. So. Everybody says it a little bit different. Okay. Um, Josh is going to start off because I was going to try to get the resume in my head so that I could do it in the intro. It turns out it's too long. There are too many accolades for me to get all out at once. So, Josh, take it away. So I'm sure we're going to miss something here. You just got to chop it short because I'm not good with accolades. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a few of them. You have a few. Whether you meant uh, to collect them or not. We'll just, we'll just throw a few out there. But uh, let's see. You, uh, you've been the mountain biking national champion uh, multiple times in the marathon distance and the 24-hour distance. Um, you, you do all sorts of things here in the community. Um, you're a local coach. You... Uh, or the head coach of the USA Cycling Junior Talent ID slash development camp, which is uh, which is where I got to know you a little further. Yeah. Um, that's always really exciting. And uh, more recently, you're also the course director of the Pikes Peak Apex. Um, and then mm, tons of other things that uh, you know, we, we don't have to dig too, too deep into, but you've stood on the podium many, many times uh, in many different disciplines and have a pretty well-versed cycling career. Uh, so just just to start off, um, I'd love to hear how how you got started in cycling and where that all came about. Yeah, um, so I'm originally not from Colorado. I'm a transplant, so all those stickers on bumpers, bumper plates—that's me, I guess. That's I'm not native, but um, but I came from Kentucky. Uh, there's not a big cycling community there. Um, so from the standpoint of uh, there's only a couple of us, like me and a buddy that was in my wedding, that we were the ones that kind of took it to the extent of kind of racing professional. And, uh, but started out as just kind of a, a young punk, you know, teenager riding a BMX bike and it was a little sense of freedom. So I'd go after school and, um, I actually lived out in the country, probably, I don't know, um, 12 miles out of town, but I'd ride my, my dyno into town and go check out the local bike shop. Cause I'd drool over stuff there and go jump off any loading dock I could or build, build ramps and try to jump off of them. Um, and, uh, I was actually into like team sports, um, basketball, football, that stuff, but everybody else kept growing and I didn't, I was like five foot, hundred pounds, some nothing in middle school. And, uh, that's whenever I kind of noticed that, once I got shelved from starting point guard to not because the coach, I missed practice one Saturday and he saw me out riding my bike and he's like, oh, you're on the bench. And then that took me to the level of like, all right, this is fun. I must keep riding bikes and camping trips and mountain biking with my sister and brother-in-law. And that was the next thing. Got into a race when I was 16 and kind of never looked back. Okay. Wait a minute. Where in Kentucky? Cause I'm actually from Southern Illinois. Oh, um, then we're pretty close cause yeah. Western Kentucky. I grew up in Murray. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I'm in the, like kind of the Eastern Mississippi kind of corridor, but right only on. like 10 minutes from the Tennessee border. So 
Okay, so that makes me feel like I didn't do something right because I came from that same kind of environment and I'm way slow <laughs> by contrast. I don't know. I guess it's one of the things that even from athletics and even just like coaching background is just consistency. So I don't know your consistency or whatever. I was but definitely not consistent. Yeah. I played too much golf. Yeah. And I had like, that's one thing. It's like, like my wife's a way better athlete than I am, but, um, and other people I know, but it's less like relentless. Like I've always done very consistent kind of training or not even training like I've just enjoyed it and that's kind of a, a coaching philosophy too is like some people you know have to take it and take it to the nth degree of seriousness to make it to that next level and um, I, I've chosen a few times in my life not to take it to that level and have some pretty decent accolades but if I think I would have taken it to that next level I would have maybe gotten more but probably burned out and not be where I'm at today so it's like a kind of a give and take yeah. it's like race for a pro team and make a maybe a contract, but not have any, you know, health benefits or career. And then, you know, but I chose a career <laughs> a couple of times. So yeah. work behind a desk or do something like that. Try to race on the, on the side. So talk to me about that though, because probably many of us who maybe are not super young, you know, like these days, the idea of development leagues and cycling camps exist. And like, especially out here in Colorado, if you're, you know, you're that kid who got shelled from starting point guard, you have options. In Illinois, I was also playing basketball, and I was pretty bad about it. I, there was no option. It was like, go ride your bike in the woods by yourself. Yeah. So how'd you get from there? What was that first race? And then what made you think, wait a minute, I'm going to make this a thing? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I ever thought what makes what made it a thing. Um, I think that transition was probably collegiate cycling because, like, the, there's such a supportive network there. Um and really, there, with not having a big supportive network, I give most of it to my sister and brother-in-law because they were, um, like, my parents divorced when I was uh, 12. And so I kind of, like, taken under the wing of my brother-in-law and sister and hung out with them a lot. And so they just were enjoying outdoors. And she was eight years older than I was, so she was in her, like, young 20s. Um, and so it was one of those things where we would go camping and mountain bike, and it wasn't something competitive at all. And then um, we just had like some local races at what's considered Land Between the Lakes, and there's a pretty good trail system there. Um, some point-to-point -point trails that are like 40 miles long and things like that. And frankly, my first experience um, on a bike racing was something I'm not proud of because I kind of threw like a hissy fit because <laughs> like didn't know the finish shoot like because it was point to point and mm -hmm. came around the corner and they didn't have it set up that morning where we parked and got shuttled to the start and you know basically made a turn within the last hundred and something meters and lost a placement and i basically like ghost rode my bike across the finish line into the bushes and like threw out a few curse words and you know <laughs> that that actually set a, a precedence like i remember my like friend's parents they were like a lot of religion in the Bible Belt, and mm -hmm. people were like, just you know, wise, oh, wide-eyed yeah. and awestruck. And I, you know, I, I look back on that, and it's set a precedence for everything after then to be um, like cordial to volunteers, smile, say thank mm -hmm. you. Like even out on the road commuting, it's like you know, I commuted up here to you guys today, and it's like that's part of my lifestyle. It's like not something where it's like somebody has to twist my arm to be like, go ride your bike. It's like yeah. if I get a chance to do it, make it happen. So that's awesome. Yeah. And that's going to be the first tip for the day. Don't ghost ride your bike across the finish line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was working with junior kids a lot, doing these, uh, you know, the Devo team several years in the talent ID camp. There's there's kids that have attitude. And that's one of the things of being uh, the manager and head coach and things like that is, you know, we get to, as coaches, pass on our experiences to, you know, the USA Cycling, the, the talent ID pipeline is what it's considered. So mm -hmm. if we see people that are doing the right things or have the right attitude, sometimes they're 
they're the team player that can make the next step to the next level. And we pass those names on because of like their attitude. And so there's been some very talented athletes that don't have the attitude. And, you know, that's not necessarily do we just like slough them off, but we kind of try to, you know, corral them in the right direction be like, hey, you, even though you're talented, you've got to work on these aspects because when you go to an international race or you get invited, you have to be cordial with everyone, work with a team manager and not just be the, the standoff person that thinks they're better than everybody. So um, I learned from that experience and there's a few people that, you know, have come along and they have really good attitudes and they may be, you know, not second tier, but they're the ones that are like, hey, work on this because you've got good qualities. Your attributes are, are there. Keep it going. Yeah. So. Well, that's really great to hear because, you know, especially since most of the sport, you know, some of us, we do get the chance to go out there on race day where it's our trail and you just get to rail it. Most of us spend most of our time on trails that we share, you know, with other people and that idea of the sport top to bottom being one that has, you know, that kind of courtesy and forward thinking attitude. I mean, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. Because that kind of stuff can be driven from the top. You know, you get athletes that are punks pretty soon you got people on the regular trail that are punks because they see oh i guess that's how we get to act yeah yeah it's a it's one of those things where it's like it frustrates me now whenever it's like we're out on the trails and i try to be cordial and greeting to anybody that's out there and it's like to not be receiving on that on the other end like another trail user whether it's a biker hiker or whatever it may be it just blows my mind that we have such a beautiful playground and people don't even acknowledge you and i know there's sometimes where people maybe have a earbud in or something like that but it's like there's other times where they're just disgruntled that they're out on the trail and i'm like how could you be so you know disgruntled you're out here (laughs) enjoying this playground like (laughs) take a look around i grew up in kentucky like look at what we have here in colorado springs like it's amazing (laughs) oh yeah how are you gonna be that grumpy in the woods like exactly Yeah, that's it's so crucial for where we're at right now. Uh, and I don't know if you've noticed in the, the recent, well, real year and a half as everybody moved outside with COVID, uh, but the tension of the trail seems to have risen quite a bit. So now more than ever, that, that attitude of, of respect and cordiality is, is so crucial. That's just probably because you go do like, hundred mile loops in the dog park area. <laughs> Sorry, I had to call you out on that, Josh. Yeah, yeah that, wasn't, no, that was my best idea. <laughs> I'm not getting out as much these days or maybe at the prime times because of just having two young kids. So I, I do, ex- I have seen that obviously, but, uh, and I think it's just going everywhere because even like up in Jeffco in Denver, like they're, they now have trail, trail restrictions on the number of people you can have out. So you can't like take a, a team out and practice or anything like that of over, 10 people or eight people or something like that without getting a fine. So, yeah, I know that the Colorado high school league is really working to, to figure out how to make that that function since their teams are so large now. Uh, Thankfully we don't have that in the Springs yet, but if things continue as they are, it may not be too long. That'd be one of those good problems to have though. If we had that many kids out there riding that that was a problem. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, we don't have, like from living in Denver when I first moved out to here, like the trail access we have is much better. Like, you know, yeah. there's been people that have moved from Denver to here and they're like road riders or something. They're like, oh man, you, there's nothing to no road riding here because there's just, you know, there's lack of passes or lack of access to the mountains and it's too busy. And then they find out the mountain bike is like the way to do it. And there's just more access, but it's not that well known or identified. And I think it's getting better in the last few years with some trail work and whether it's, you know, some things being shut down, um, to some things being opened or refined, you know, people can debate on that otherwise, but I feel like it's opening up and making the the network better for more users than not. And I think that's something we have to have because Colorado, Colorado is growing. So is Colorado Springs. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I wanted to step back a little bit and you talk about more of your journey from that first race of ghosting your bike across the line to becoming a professional rider and what your expectations were of what a professional was and how that rang true or not when you got to that point. I don't think at that point I knew what a professional rider was because I was still, I think my, the, the path was more of just like having the, the ethics instilled in me to keep pushing because even, um, between that, like I didn't can keep racing all the time. It was like one race that first year. And, you know, and that was like throwing up on the side of the trail. Cause I didn't eat the right breakfast beforehand. Like yep, waffle house there. is not the, the best thing to do. Um, <laughs> but it was like, I was always making it happen because even like a couple races after that, well, that wasn't the first race. That was like a second race, but you know, like to make it happen, it's like when I was 16, I drove my own car while my mom and stepdad like drove behind me in their Jeep. Cause they were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it was like four hours. I was like, why did I drive by myself? And you guys drove separate to go to this race. And it was like, but I was like, I still want to make it happen, but they wanted to do their own thing and go like antique shopping or something. So it was like always having that ethic to say like, take it to the next level. But it's like, I took breaks to, you know, work. So it's like, I was working two jobs in eighth grade, had a high work ethic. And so I think that transposed over to the bike. So it's like, you know, there were times where I took stints off to work for a moving company or a landscaping company. And I remember like in college, whenever I was trying to get my pro card, like going into finals week and I would be covered in like bar and chain oil and sawdust because like we had had a hailstorm and I got an offer to go work with the guys I was doing landscaping with. And they're like, we got a ton of trees to cut down off the golf course. You want to make X number of dollars. And I was like, sweet. I'd rather do that. And pay off some bills and be able to travel this summer, do whatever. And it's like all the other kids would look at me funny when I'd walk into finals, like covered in all this dirt and stuff. Cause you know, that's not the normal college thing. And then I'd go ride my bike after. So I didn't, wasn't always racing. So, but it took a hard effort to get there. <laughs> I bet. It sounds like you were always fairly consistent though, even though it wasn't uh, your primary focus all the time. It was always there. Yeah, I did something, maybe not riding like those years in like high school to college, like taking some time off to do those jobs and work for moving companies and make some money so I could pay, pay my way through college. But, um, it made it tough. Cause I remember going to like snowshoe nationals as an expert and not only doing like, like lifting heavy boxes and moving stuff for people. And I was like, was fit, but wasn't, um, strong on the bike per se, like a little yeah. bit heavy for muscle mass. Like I had, you know, traps and lats and all this stuff from carrying stuff, but it's like, couldn't push up the climb. So, but it's like very consistent from that standpoint, um, and had a good program. And that's one of the things whenever I did finally go pro, um, I had like a, a very good focus of working on like you know, what's called base work. And it was like, you know, just the low intensity, build up the volume. And even then that's one thing, like I did very well, like my senior year in college, whenever I did go pro, um, that I hit that nailed it, like had a progressive overload all the way through the, you know, the winter months. And just, you know, at that time it was like, don't get your heart rate above this number. You're going to blow capillaries or something. And it was kind of like, you know, <laughs> utter, utter bullshit as far as the, <laughs> if that's true. Um, but it, but it, the premise, even though that may be wrong, it actually works. Like the low intensity work does work. It's like, was able to come out of that season and just be super resilient. Um, and the, the speed came after that. And even though everything else went to crap after that, as far as like a long-term relationship breakup and then like trying to make a job and all kinds of stuff, it was like, all right, I did the work. I put in like 20 something hour weeks for a while. And now it's like, skating on that but being pro in kentucky is very different than being pro in colorado <laughs> oh, <is it? laughs> so yeah like 
you know, I used to race and I remember it was funny cause like pro cycling is a the bike shop here in town and they had a team. And I remember being at like one of the nationals, um, in MBS races back in the day and seeing pro cycling. And I was like, well, what is pro cycling? Like, is that like, is that the pro cycling? <laughs> but I didn't know it was <laughs> a bike shop. Pros, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pro cycling. But obviously like, you know, go to national work, Coloradans and people from altitude show up and just get, you know, just get your face kicked in kind of deal compared to like being a kid from 400 foot altitude, um, which is nothing. So I've got a good friend of mine who races back in Illinois and he will make that comment every now and then, you know, we'll, we'll be talking and I'll, you know, give him some congratulations and be like, you know, Hey, good, good job on that race. He's like, whoa, 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 for Illinois. I'm like, I don't know that I trust you guys anymore though. Cause especially the bigger the gravel scene has gotten back there. Some people got real strong. It's getting better. I feel like there was niches more back, you know, I think, probably dating myself now, but I've been in Colorado since 2006. So it's like 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, coming from that Southeast scene, we had a pretty good Southeast. It was called the Cirque series. Um, and there was pretty strong racers in the Southeast, like Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, um, on the mountain bike side of things. And I think it's dependent on mountain bike versus road. There's different scenes like California is like a big, strong road scene, like Arizona, things like that. Colorado has like a pretty good mix of both, but it's coming back up now. I feel like it's more people doing it, more access and more trails and things like that. So and yeah. gravel helps just everybody because it kind of fits the bill between both sports that everybody can do almost. So, Oh, yeah. So was there anybody along that journey that you can identify, you look back as either a coach or a mentor or somebody who really stopped and said, you, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to make something out of you. There were two one may not be the best example, one it maybe is. But the, <laughs> we're, we welcome both kinds. So, but the first wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be there, or I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for it, even though it ended up kind of bad. Um, but yeah, when I was like 16, a guy local in town um, was like, you, you're, you're fast, you're fit, you should start riding with us. Like hooked me up with like a friend's road bike, took me to like a century and a double century that we did, um, all kinds of stuff. But the, the tips he gave me were, not the best. It was like things like, oh, you just need sugar when you, when you ride or whatever. So it's sugar and caffeine. So he's like, just mix like this knockoff Mountain Dew, like, and Gatorade. And it's like, <laughs> stuff just like ate your gut and your teeth apart. Oh so gosh. it's like, yeah, it's like, just leave them open in the fridge. So they, you know, not have fizz. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I was like, just yet. listen to what this guy was saying. Cause he was like a cat to road racer or whatever. Oh my gosh. I think he ended up going to jail for some type of like fraud, like having stuff mailed to his other people's houses and picking it up <laughs> oh, to man. get bike parts and stuff. So oh my gosh. Yeah, um, I can't even recall his name because I think I kind of shut that out. But he yep. did get me in the in the scene because he also told me about uh, Lindsey Wilson College, which is uh, one of the first few. I think it was like the third um, varsity cycling program for collegiate cycling in the U.S. And it just happened to be in, in central Kentucky. Um, so he told me that, hey, there's they've got a cycling program. You'd be good. Um, and at that time, I didn't know that it was like I thought of varsity sports as like, oh, man, this is like big deal. Like NCAA. Yeah. Um, Needless to say, down the road, I ended up working for USA Cycling as a collegiate <clears throat> director when I moved out here mm-hmm. and learned a whole lot more about it. So <laughs> did realize that it was at that level, collegiate cycling was just, you know, trying to scrape in anybody they could. So like right. walk-ons, whatever, because it's all point systems, like anytime they can score in the A category, B category, C category, all the way down, men's, women's, all different omniums. It's like they just want anybody in. So I was able to, you know, go in and meet with Lindsey Wilson. They were super stoked to have somebody come in it's a private school um so it's like you know they just want numbers at that point and not to say i was just a number but 
the the person I met there that was a mentor was uh, was Chris Schmidt, um, who was the coach at the time. But as a cycling coach, he wasn't somebody that was like, here's your training plan. We're going to go out and do this. He was didn't come from cycling, but he was a good mentor. Like he was, I don't know, he's a big, big dude, like six foot something, had a big body build. Um, and now yeah. he does like Ironman and rides a bunch. But at that time, he was just like, you know, if you drafted behind him, you could sit like three, three cyclists <laughs> behind this guy and ride on a flat until yeah. it went uphill. But he, he was one of those that actually like, you know, helped um, guide me in the process. It was like, Hey coach, come to school next year. And I, I applied for school there and got, got on as a walk on and then got scholarship for my next couple of years. And, uh, he did the little things like when we would go to national championships, um, he would write, he wrote some notes, even though he didn't go with us one time, cause he passed on his coaching role and moved on, um, to, he's now the Dean of students. So he kind of moved up the ranks, but he would write notes to us and leave them. Um, so he kind of like helped corral us in the right direction. And it was never like, anything about like, here's your power numbers, anything like that. It was just the right, mm-hmm. right words to lead you. And, uh, maybe the other mentor was Greg Dunn. He was a local pro and was the the coach after that. And we ended up being roommates after that in Nashville and stuff. But he was one of those two that was like, you know, I always looked up to him and always made him mad because when I finally got to the point when I caught him in a semi-pro race and he was like eating a half of a Chipotle burrito in front of like a 40-mile race and I was like a young, like, you know, chattering kid, like 18, 19 mm-hmm. years old. And I'm like, hey, Greg, I'm so surprised I caught you. I was just happy to be up there. Yeah. And it just after we like got to know each other, he's like, remember that time? He's like, you pissed me off so bad. I was up there winning the race and you caught me and you were just chattering along. Uh. I mean, he be- beat me still, but it was like one of those things where yeah. he's like, little cocky bastard. <laughs> have have you had some similar experiences uh on the flip side now where people catch me or some of these cocky little punks that you're coaching yes. oh yeah i mean <laughs> i mean you've seen it at the talent id camps and you've helped those things it's like it's sometimes all i can do to like ride up front and control the kids it's like because there's even still being competitive um frankly that's partially why I still, you know, I say this is air quotes, but train is like, so I can actually halfway keep up with the kids because they're just, they're such little bottle rockets. They're just so fast. Um, that doesn't bother me because that's been my style. Like I found out later, like talking during races is kind of my, um, races or hard efforts is like my way of like distracting myself from the effort maybe. And it's like, I've even won races that way, I guess, because people are like, you were talking, I was suffering. I just had to like drop off. And I'm like, I was dying. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> secret given for those that Ooh, yeah, yeah. The mental game right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so was cycling a pretty big impetus for moving to Colorado Springs then? Um, not necessarily. I got a, it was kind of another career path cause I moved to, moved to Denver. Um, when I met my now wife, um, she was out here going to school at UCD and I was in a job in Nashville and it was like, I'd been on, been in a long-term relationship or long distance relationship before. And I was like, heck with that. If it's, if it's going to be this, then I got to make a move. And it was one of those things where I had a good job and I'd taken a, a career path and kind of turned down a, a role to maybe race on the road. Um, kind of join in with the team um, just as a guest rider. And I was like, guest ride for a team and not make anything or take a like a health consulting job where I actually make a good salary. And then when I was in Nashville with working at that job, um, my I told my boss that I was considering like, you know, taking a stint and coming out here doing something like that. And they, they were like, oh, that the girl's not worth it. You should just, you know, 
stay here. You're moving up the ranks, whatever. And I was like, all right, that's, that's a decision of the, I, I resigned and I just moved to Colorado and I was jobless. Oh. <laughs> so I moved to Colorado Springs <laughs> because in. I got a job at the um, Olympic training center when USA cycling was there as the collegiate high school director. Um, so it kind of fit because of going, I went to Lindsay Wilson for a couple of years, which was a varsity program. And then I, they, my professor kind of like, uh, I guess she got pregnant and there wasn't, it wasn't a big school. Um, so they kind of like put the exercise science path on hold, like, Hey, we're going to bring some people in. Maybe you should go pre-med blah, blah, blah. This. And because of the small school, I was like, I still want to work on this, but I would, what am I going to do? Like, just because the professor's on like leave. So I transferred back to Murray state, um, which didn't have a varsity program, but we started a, a club team from there and actually built it with a few other guys from there in town. And so having that experience got me kind of like in with USA cycling of doing varsity and club and, so we moved down here because it was easier for me to not commute from Denver every day <laughs> and Heather could go to night classes. So that was much easier. <laughs> Makes sense. But I'm glad I did. Yeah. Well, we are too. Oh, yeah. So from going back to Murray State, club team, to national champ 24-hour, that feels like a gap. <laughs> What happened in there? Like, what was that path like? And what got you to the point where you said, not only do I want to race bikes, I want to race bikes for obscenely long periods of time that most people would think is just torture. That's probably a good question. One probably never asked myself. I think there's just always this, this challenge of more. And I think the short answer is just consistency. Um, mm -hmm. that goes back to that because there's nothing, you know, a lot of people want like the, the hack or the, you know, the, the magic pill to get stuff and it's not there. I mean, I, I resort back to the, you know, the, the example of base and the years, a couple of years I did it correctly, I think helps set you up for the long term. Like, because even it's probably a bad analogy, but like say doping, like, you know, if somebody actually, improves their physiological capacity because they took some type of substance they're still not the same person ever after that because they've changed their capacity and so it's like right you know even like the the athlete we were talking about that i worked with that um kind of hacked my website or not hacked it but connected it to to my url but um he had he had that like he put in a few years of really solid work and he's mm -hmm. referred other friends and clients to me and they're like how can joe continue to do this like he has good results, but he's not consistent. And I'm like, because he was really consistent and he put in a big amount of work and focus when he needed to. And he's developed that inherent base that he can always resort back to and, and like kind of relive and bring it, bring it to the surface pretty quickly. And I think that's one of the things for me, it's like being able to put the work in consistently and then just do it. And I think obviously being a coach, I'm kind of privileged because like it was part of my job, like because I enjoyed right. working with athletes and being hands-on. I was, you know, after I worked with USA Cycling, I worked with uh, CTS and I, I worked a ton of camps because like if any, if it pedals, like I'll do it. Like I raced mountain cross, dual slalom, downhill in college as well, because like my roommates did. And it's like, I broke my ribs dirt jumping and, you know, I wasn't yep. just the endurance racer too. So it's like that helped build me skills. But it's like when I was coaching with, you know, CTS, it's like I was working gravel camps, road camps, mountain camps. So it's like 90 days a year I was, I was on the bike all day working with athletes and riding. So it's like it helped progress because there were some weeks where it's like, you know, I think the stress and whether it's physiological or um, stress on the body from riding, some of those camp days were harder than ever because it would be like, you know, doing U.S. Pro Challenge where we're out there with 
10 hours making a, a ride or, you know, doing Leadville camps day after day after day after day for, you know, three weeks straight or something like that. It's like, yeah. oh, I just did 25 hour weeks and I'm coaching and this is my job. So it's like your job turns into your training, I guess. So, yeah. So what would you say? Cause now, you know, we've talked about <clears throat> your own path, um, at, uh, you know, earlier time in your life, we're talking about all these kids who are in these development camps. What would you say though, if somebody came to you and they said, all right, I'm older, I, you know, had a average life in athletics, but now I've got kids, I've got a job. I don't have 20 hours a week to give, but I want to actually get good. Is there hope yeah. <laughs> for somebody who doesn't have all the time to give? Yeah. And that's actually the majority. I mean, I work, it's kind of like uh, polarized. Like I'll work with a lot of juniors because of like my experience with high school and collegiate stuff. And then a lot of masters, because it seems like the gap in the middle is the people that are still trying to make it and can't, can't afford coaching per se. So it's like, those are the ones that usually it's like, I have like a scholarship or, you know, the racers are the ones that are having a hard time paying for the service. But once you get it somewhat established, the masters people are the ones that are like, you know, it's the new midlife crisis or not the new, it's been like the last couple of decades. Like yeah. instead of buying a sports car or motorcycle, I'm going to go, you know, run a ultra or do a, you know, a hundred mile mountain bike race, which to me is crazy because like those people that have the limited time, they may have had sport background or something like that, but not endurance sport or maybe some endurance sport, but it's been 10 years since I've done it or more. And so those are the crazy ones because it's like, it's a, you know, it's a, keeps me in, in a job. But yeah. from the standpoint of like my first mountain bike race wasn't a hundred mile race. And a lot of these people are, it's like, I want to do Leadville 100 or I want to do, you know, I want to do these big, <laughs> oh you know, these big bucket list events, which is cool because it, it puts something like, you know, Hey, I want to do a marathon or I want to do a marathon mountain bike race or, you know, a century or gravel grinder. And it's like, all of these things are epic, like huge. Like you guys know the events. It's like, you know, if it's a hundred mile, that's like the, the gravel ones are like, that's like the baby version. It's like, you're not doing the 150 or the 180 oh, or the yeah, 200. Yeah. It's like, and well, I'm like getting longer <clears throat> from yeah. a, from a coach and physiology standpoint, I'm like blown away at that because like my first hundred mile race was after, let's see, after I moved to Colorado. So I'd been racing pro for, um, six years. So it's like, and the progression of sport is like, you know, typical categories is right. you race a beginner race. It's maybe mm -hmm. eight to 10 miles and sport race, you know, then there's an expert race and then they used to have semi pro. So it's like I race semi pro and then pro and I never thought of thinking like, I'm going to do a 50 or a hundred. And that's like right where people jump into the deep end. It's like, all right, yeah. tie my hands and let's go. <laughs> so yeah. that's, yeah. We actually did an interview yesterday with a friend of ours who narrowly missed, um, that, uh, from the ground up. Yeah. From the ground up, he was going to be one of the candidates where they took people who had with almost no cycling background and tried to put them in the Leadville 100. Yeah in a straight shot. I probably could have submitted several people for that <laughs> in the past years. It's like I've coached probably, probably over a hundred people, like two Leadville finishes, um, in the past from working with CTS and personally, like, you know, I basically lived up there for a month every year, um, basically doing camps and stuff. And I still do a bunch of those. And that's one of those that people want to check off a lot. And, uh, you know, you can do it. The thing is like your original question, I don't think I answered it, but like if somebody wants to do it and they don't have the ton of time, I think it's just, there's a few aspects of, they have to kind of manipulate their, what's considered like their, I hate to say training because a lot of times it doesn't need to be training at that level. At a certain points it, it does, if you're doing something as audacious as Leadville. Um, but it's like, you have to modify your training density to, and also I call it like riding the waves. Like you have to have like 
peaks and valleys in your in your in your riding and your fitness that kind of stuff to make sure that you you have days the peaks are like more intensity or more volume or a combination of those and the valleys need to be lower intensity lower volume um those kinds of things because the thing i see with a lot of people is they just want to go out and ride and they ride moderately too hard so then their their highs get low or too low and that ends up being like a kind of a dulled sine wave versus like something that's truly like a jagged like up and down and the doesn't necessarily have to be like a day as a peak it could be like you know people prepping for like stage races it's like you know that maybe the peak rides two three days in a row where you're doing two or three hard days or, or challenging days and then you have some valleys between but the, the training is the hard stuff. It tears yeah. you down. you got to recover and soak it up to make make sure you get stronger. Oh, yeah. So Well, and I, I'm going to ask a question, but I think I already know the answer based on what you just said. Would you say that on average, the people you work with, uh, they don't train hard enough or they don't rest hard enough? Um, it's a combination of both. Some of them train hard enough, but they train consistently too hard. Like, because to really it takes discipline to really learn the low. And I kind of relate it to like almost like a gearbox in a car. And there's hardly any like stick shifts out there now, but it's like say a six speed paddle shifter. Like, you know, if if you only have a a three speed on the column, that's somebody Mm -hmm. that maybe hasn't developed their aerobic engine. Like you've only, you're like, you're sitting there like go out on a low intensity ride zone one, zone two. And it's like, they're so tapped out that it's like, they have to do the utmost flattest route or sit on the trainer or do something like that to keep that intensity low. So the discipline to work at that low intensity is hard because I remember doing it as a, as a, you know, aspiring pro. And it was like the discipline it took to be like, I'm going to blow my capillaries. And I was like, that's bull crap. But it's like, <laughs> you know, you're sitting there trying to like keep your heart rate down because mm-hmm. you just want to get over the next hill. And that's the kind of discipline it takes to be develop the resiliency. And so that's the thing they end up riding their, they think they're easy rods because they've gotten so used to that, you know, middle zone that mm-hmm. then it just feels, that feels okay. And it, frankly, that middle zone feels good because it releases a lot of endorphins. It feels like you're going kind of fast, but nobody wants to feel slow. So that's where they don't do enough easy, true, easy training to be able to do the hard stuff. Yeah. And then that's the challenge is that by training too hard on those days, then they're never able to rest enough, recover enough to get that top end higher yeah. And then train at that intensity. Yeah. Is that the idea? Yeah. Cause it's like, uh, there's kind of a, like a concept I use with athletes. I coach like basically consider like an acute dose of overload. And that could be like a single day where it's like, if you can't get enough time and intensity that you're looking for to move your dial on that day, then you're kind of just making yourself more tired. It would be like if, you know, you know, like a common interval or something like that would be like, all right, you're going to do like something like a threshold interval, something like eight to 10 minutes long, but it's Mm -hmm. like maybe you only go and do two of them at quality or three of them. And you really need to do say four or five, maybe a beginner three, three would be normal, but they only get through one and a half. So it's like, maybe you're only doing half of what you're really capable of to move your dial because you're somewhat fatigued. And so it's like, then you just create more fatigue and you feel like you had a really hard workout because you, you hit the edge and you couldn't even complete it. So it's like, well, Obviously it was hard enough, but you didn't accumulate enough time. And that's what I see. Like I wrote it like a, an article on my blog called basically the dip. And it's kind of from, um, something Seth Godin wrote, um, in one of his books, but it's basically like people start working hard enough for a certain amount of time. And then when it gets, then when it gets hard, that's when a lot of people quit. Mm -hmm. And that's when the point is when you really need to surpass it, like you should quit earlier if you're not going to get to that point, because it's like, you're just going to get the point of diminishing returns. But 
the thing is like in most intervals, the durations or most workouts or whenever things get hard, if you keep pushing that next level and it not necessarily mean harder, but just holding on to it, like say, you know, are you going to get the same benefit from a 20 minute effort versus a 10 minute effort? Uh, the 10 minute effort, just as hard as a 20, it's just, you held on to that 20 a little longer. And so that, that end point is you, when people usually quit and that's when you really need to hang on to it because your body's at a point of physiological stress that you're forcing it to, to get, to get the adaptive signal. Like you're, you're mm-hmm. basically like saying, this is what you're going to have to deal with. And you do that and then repeat it. And that's whenever you kind of start getting it. So it's like, I always encourage people to like, you know, surpass that dip, hang on just a little bit longer. And those are where the benefit comes. So. Is there a certain metric or metrics that you use to help people gauge, you know, when they need to go harder or when they need to shut it down and, and get rest in so they can push harder the next time? Um, are you talking like chronic metric or something like, in, like, Hey, I'm doing a workout and right now or both both um there luckily so many people like especially a lot of the masters and stuff like that now have access to so much so many tools um you know there's stress scores on watches there's you know power meters heart rate um i really think it goes back to what's considered like a triangulation i mean I, i think you have to have if you have the power power meter if you have the heart rate monitor if you have your perceived effort that's you have to like triangulate those together because one without any of the others don't don't matter because the power is your your true output it's what you're capable of your heart rate is the response to that output and then your rpe your perceived effort is how you tie all those together because if i tell you to go out and do an effort and you should be able to do it based on say testing or some kind of field testing we've done but the the actual um the effort that you're doing feels hard for that day, then it's hard. What reason that's the coaching that goes behind it is trying to figure out why that feels hard um, for that acute session. Maybe it's meant to feel hard, but how hard, like on a say one to 10 scale, if is, is it something where you're, um, you know, you're supposed to be working at a nine out of 10. Okay. That's great. But if you feel like it's a 10 out of 10, then were you, did you start too hard? Did you prime the system too much? Are you just underslept? Maybe that's the the chronic metric of like, this feels way harder than previous sessions that I've done. So that's kind of tying the acute into the chronic. I really like using heart rate a lot because, you know, that is, that is a response to the body of how close are you working to max um, kind of deal. So I use a lot of percentage of max, which some people don't. Um, So it's like, if you're doing a certain effort, then your heart rate should get to a certain place because if you're, if you're working at that intensity, then you should be getting that physiological response kind of like primed up into a certain system to where you can handle it. And then you should align those. So a lot of times, like I don't give intervals or workouts sometimes prescribed on one specific metric if we have more to work with, but it's, you know, start out, it may be a power range. So you can look at controlling because it's kind of giving yourself somewhat of guardrails, like given open reins, like especially working with a lot of mountain bikers, they were the ones like when power meters first came out, it was like, they were the ones that would, just go full gas on anything because that's how races start i've never done that never (laughs) never (laughs) never that's like all the juniors we work with they're they're great at vo2 efforts but then it's like you have them hold a long effort and they're the ones that'll suffer um but it's like if you go hard off the start then you got to learn to control it because what you do and this is typical is you'll go super hard based on the output and it doesn't feel hard but then you get the vo2 slow component and it catches up and your heart rate then gets high but if you're really 
if you have power and you can see that your power is dropping or you're not able to sustain what you should, but your heart rate's pinned. And I've seen this a lot where I've had people cover up their, their power meters or not use them or they don't have one. And then I test them on something else and I'm like, you know, do this kind of effort and then I'll, I'll show you what it's actually going to be. So then from that standpoint, you know, it's a downward sliding trend of power. The heart rate's climbing or plateauing and they think they're going hard. But realistically, it's just high physiological strain. So there's a reason why you'd want to, you know, m- m- like meter out your efforts sometimes or control it. And there's certain workouts I do and things like that to make sure that, you know, that works. So there's a lot of wisdom that you just threw down right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to take notes and then I realized that we're lucky because I can just go back and listen to this recording anytime <laughs> I want. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we, we definitely should have given you a beer before this, even though it's like 10 in the morning, just as a, a thank you for that. <laughs> Yeah, I could keep going on about that stuff. It's like, you know, that's, and we'd love you that's too. the Don't bread and butter of like the coaching because like there's a lot of coaching stuff out there that's, you know, I think one of the things you mentioned was like how people can get better with or without a coach earlier. And, you know, I think that's one of the things. There's so many great training plans out there, but training plans to me isn't coaching. Like it's required for sure. It's like not like I'm going to say like, hey, Josh, I'm going to coach you. Here's here we're doing this, but there's no training plan behind it. You're like, well, what are we doing? So that's kind of the, the right the base but then the coaching behind it is is working on those how are you doing these efforts how are you you know do you even need to do intervals like you know i don't do a ton of intervals myself because it's like i work them into a a trail ride and people are like you do intervals on a on a mountain bike and i'm like totally like Mm -hmm. it's called my up downs or whatever it's like i earn it to burn it like i climb on climb hard to get to a certain point and then descend and it's like almost doing like enduro intervals because it's like you know you get the ups and the downs to burn so make it fun yeah and that's why i stick with it and that's sometimes the coaching aspect is trying to get people like some people love repeating up and down a certain section of road like that's not me Uh, but so that's trying to learn each each individual athlete and stuff like that to make sure that they can do it but it's like they can follow a lot of good training plans but they also have to have the the flexibility to not be um, so rigid that they listen to their body. And I think that's the hardest thing of like the recovery versus the recover hard enough or train hard enough. A lot of them just need to listen to their body because like most of us have, you know, lives, jobs, kids, you know, mm-hmm. other things outside of sport. We're not professional athletes and even a professional athlete, like people say like, Oh, you went pro. And I'm like, well, pro mountain biker, whatever it is, cat one road. Like I never got pro like maybe it was on my card at one point but it's like that thing is i'm not getting paid i'm paying dearly for most that i do and investing yeah but it's still fun and i'll do it um because it's an enjoyment but from that standpoint those those people need to invest in listening to their body more than anything it's a it's a daily self-reflection of like when you get up like am i jonesing to do this today am i stoked Mm -hmm. and somebody twisting my arm like and as a, as people get closer to like those goal events that they're trying to do, maybe there should be a little bit more twisting your arm, but it's a process like far out from it. You shouldn't be like, you know, constantly like throttling yourself to be like, I've got to get out here and do this. And maybe that's tough because like maybe that's in the winter months and stuff and you have to have more motivation and it. it's yeah. a little bit, but it's like, it should, should give and take a little bit from that standpoint. So, so in, I used to do a little more rock climbing and especially in the bouldering community that I was a part of the the phrase was and i don't it definitely didn't originate there i don't actually know where this came from the phrase if you learn how to listen to your body whisper you don't have to hear it scream <laughs> that's Would a good you, one 
would you say that that's accurate in that sense of learning how to listen to the small signals? Yeah, uh, I might steal that or borrow it at some yeah, point because that's a, that's a good one because I feel like so many people get to the point where this, it's bl- their body's blatantly screaming at them and it's like almost like really like we're having this conversation right now and you're not seeing it. Like, yeah. but that's what coaching is. It's having a, an objective outlook. Like, and that's the kind of the coaching philosophy is like, I want to coach myself out of a job with most people. And I, that's like the first phrase is that I use with most people. It's like, I want you to understand the process because if you understand the process, like I'm not a doctor, I don't get paid mm-hmm. enough for me to be on call with you. <laughs> like I have a family. It's like, I'm not right. going to be like answering your text at all hours of whenever you're like, I had a bad workout. I'm psychologically stressed or I need to do this. And it's like, you're getting up to hammer a session and you yeah. know, it's, I, I, so I want them to know what to do in real time. It's like, if this happens, then I should do this. And so from that standpoint, so many of them are, some are really, really good at it. Some are not. So it's like, from that standpoint, yeah, you gotta, you gotta listen to what the cues are telling you, because if you just keep like, put your head down and bang through it, you're going to end up in a, you could end up in a bad spot, but there's another side of that where sometimes you have to do that. Like, you know, going from doing small races at 16 years old to 24 hour races, like you have to kind of be somewhat stupid to kind of put your head down and drive through that stuff. It's like, you know, dirty cans or unbound gravel was this weekend. It's like, that was one of those where it's like, I went into that one and I'd never ridden gravel, borrowed of somebody's cross bike and did it. And it was like, ended up in the lead group and with like Dan Hughes, like it was just me and like a five time winner. And I was like, Oh crap, what am I doing? Yeah. And then it's like, go off course seven miles and be like, where am I at? <laughs> like, all right, this is bad. So it's like chase back on and you just ha- kind of have to put your head down and grind at that point. And same thing. It's, you sh- but don't give up too early. Cause I think that's how, how I've gotten some of those accolades is, um, kind of having the perseverance to kind of keep working when, when things get tough is like whenever I, whenever I shine a little bit. And so the, I think a bigger part of that is for athletes is mindset. Like some people can do a ton of stuff for fitness. Mm -hmm. And I know people that are way more fit than I am that I continue to get more better results than they are. But you got to have that. There's a certain amount of grit and tenacity that's developed in certain areas that they may or may not have. So working on that is key. Speaking of mindset, (laughs) there've been a couple, (laughs) a couple of your accolades that I've noticed that, uh, I'd love to hear where your mind was at. Uh, the first one was the Kids on Bikes fundraiser at the Velodrome here in town <laughs> where you rode rollers for oh. 24 hours. Oh, my gosh. And and went how many miles? Oh, I don't even know. I forgot. It was it was many. What, I didn't go. Through. So I got called out on this because I didn't go full 24 hours, but it was because we were expecting um, – our kid and we had a birth class the next morning. So I, I got off and went to our birthing class and came back. Um, it's funny, like haters are going to hate, but it's like bicycling magazine did like a whole like video edit on it and stuff in an article. And people were like calling me out for that. And I'm like, really? Are you, I rode rollers for like 21 hours or 22 hours with stops and all that. But Mm -hmm. I don't, so my mindset where I'm at with that, the first place is kind of like, stupid pride because Mm -hmm. like I set up like because I'm a coach because I'm involved in the community I've been you know involved in all different areas like I I set that up as like hey I'm going to set up a team does anybody want to do this do this with me and because everybody's like rollers are you crazy because like I'd done it a few times on trainers and we'd had teams and stuff like that and I was like all right you know like I kind of 
I grew up in doing the base work and I did it all on rollers because like the winters in Kentucky aren't bad like snow, but they're like, the temperature doesn't get, doesn't change much. It's like overcast and 30 degrees and like spitting rain slash snow mix. And so it's like the worst time to go out and do like long rides. So it's like, I remember doing like three to six hour rides on the rollers when I was doing base work. And to me, that was not my happy spot, but it's like, I could settle in and just like be able to move my bike like normal. Whereas a trainer to me is very rigid and it's like, I always get like sore spots or kind of too structured. So it's like, I was like, all right, if we're going to do this thing, I'll let's, let's change it up. Let's do something. And, and it brings that like wow factor because people see you on rollers and they're like, Oh, what is that? Like <laughs> you're not on a trainer. So I thought that may be better to raise some money because of that awareness. And it came from the idea of, um, in college at Lindsay Wilson, because we were, a, we were a varsity program, but we were, we weren't like well supported. So we used to do roller rides and sit up right in front of our cafeteria. And then we did like a 12 hour one. And I did, did, did it on rollers there too. And you know, that, I got a lot of money raised for that because it's kind of like a jump rope with on like how many miles can you do on this? And so that's where it was. But it's like the mindset, I think, is like not thinking too far ahead um, because that's what too many people do is like, especially in these long events is they think of the end point and it's way off, especially like, you know, Leadville, 200 mile gravel grinders, like 24 hours on rollers. Like if I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be riding at this point tomorrow. And that, like, that's, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be riding at this point in the middle of the night. That's long enough. It's like, let alone tomorrow. And it's like, so you have to think, like, break up the steps. Like, what's the next step? And so for me, I, I had, like, a little template in my mind of, like, I'm going to try to do three-hour stints or something like that and have my nutrition planned. I, have, I worked with another coach, um, Nick Gould, who does uh, yoga. And I was like, hey, man, give me, like, a little yoga routine that I can get off and do some stretching to do, like, open my hips, like, flex my back out, that kind of stuff. So having a plan and somewhat of a next step is what what does it. So it's like, you know, that can break down to the minute level of getting through an interval. Like, oh, I just need to change the cadence every minute. And that's, that just sets you off at that point. Like, oh, one minute's gone, two minutes gone, that kind of stuff. All the way to 24 hours. Because <laughs> like 24 hour racing, like nationals over in Palmer when I won, it was like, I didn't think past that lap. It was like, and sometimes it was even shorter than that. Get past this, this section. That's when I drink, get past this. I'm going to do this when I'm done with the lap take off the clothes, get ready for the next one, like loop chain, do whatever. It's like, it's just the next immediate step is a necessary thing that's on your mind. It seems like there's a lot of carryover into life with that being, yeah. being present. Yeah. <laughs> know the eventual goal, but yeah, don't look too far ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Got to check off that next thing. The, the second one I'd love to hear about is, uh, when you rode Evans and Pike's peak in one day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That was, uh, that was kind of just because of um, pandemic, I guess, because there weren't many events. Um, but working with working with and sponsoring a team, Go for Graham, um, that does like mental health awareness. A couple of the guys on there I co I've coached before, and one of the other guys helped with our camp, Nate Vakura, um, and Taylor Ross works with Primal and is like the uh, co-founder of Go for Graham. Um, we were all just kind of spitballing some ideas around of big things to do, and you know they were. I'm not sure who brought it up. It was maybe Taylor, um, but we were talking about it. And even some local riders here, Russell Fensterwald and Kalen had done Mount Evans and back from here in a day, which was like 200 something miles. And uh, somehow we got to the idea of doing Evans and Pikes Peak because those two guys live up in Golden uh, Golden area and that's what they typically ride. And so I was mm -hmm. like, well, Pikes Peak is here. I was like, 
we could finish it at my doorstep and start at yours. So I was like, and so we mapped it out. <laughs> kind of stupid, but it's like twenty, like twenty three thousand feet of climbing and two hundred and twenty seven miles. Um, so it was like, you know, nothing works out perfect. But we were trying to plan it, and there were some other guys involved, like Peter Ton that raced for Gopher Graham, and that I've coached for several years. And we were just trying to make it happen, but weather and all the sun, thunderstorms and stuff, and it would just happen to be like somebody said, hey, let's do it this day. And it was like five days away. And I was like, let's roll. Let's yeah. ask the wife, got the got the green card, like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> like literally like drove up, slept in my van outside the guy's house at like 11 at night, woke up at 2, drove to Golden, started at like 4 in the morning. Oh, my god! Got to see the sunrise going over like Squaw Pass and all that stuff. And it's more of just the experience. Like mindset-wise, it's not a matter of like um, – I mean, there was definitely a place of suffering, um, and that that came for me on like Pikes Peak, and I think it's just because like we didn't have like a dedicated um, aid support. Like one of the, Nate's brother helped us out, but he peeled off like somewhere around Deckers, like back in the South Platte Valley, and that's like usually towards the end is when you need support. Like we were good most of the day. It's like there's plenty of stuff to stop at, like kind of coming across from Denver to here. Um, so we had like. Joe actually met us, my, my athlete met us in Conifer out by, by his house and brought us food and water and coffee and burritos and stuff like supportive athlete coming out to support coach because it was an audacious thing. But it was like the mindset's just fun. Like you kind of see where, how far you can take your, your physiology and your mindset. Um, because I got into a pretty dark place on Pike's Peak, but it was like, once it was all over, it was like, man, this is awesome. But it's like, that's whenever my body was shutting down because I hadn't trained a ton to do that. But it was like, <laughs> it, if you just keep chugging along and you're aware of your aware of yourself, then you can actually like get to that next step as long as you have enough gears in your gearbox. So I wouldn't recommend somebody that's beginning go out and try that because yeah, you could get injured. But you know, that was that was pretty wild, pretty inspiring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what time did you finish? Uh, we finished at like um, it was getting kind of dusk i guess it was like seven at night or something like that but that was just because i everything went well until like coming down highway 24 and i flatted yeah. i was like oh the whole day and it's like downhill <laughs> downhill home and it's oh, like have no. to stand on the side of the road and fix a flat without food oh. yeah <laughs> that, that's a scary section to ride too mm -hmm. oh, 24. Yeah. i wish they had a bit, bit more of a shoulder there yeah did uh did you get to celebrate with some donuts at the top pikes um or are they closed already they were doing construction, so I don't even think we... Oh, that's right. Yeah. I don't yeah. even think we got in. There were in. no donuts. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> Someday soon. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a good uh, segue real quick into one last thing I wanted to hit, which is nutrition oh. in general. We wanted to ask, wanted to know, is there anything specific that you do that you've got in terms of, or that you've learned over the years for yourself or like for the athletes that you coach or, or beyond just like eat healthy, don't be dumb. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of one of them is, you know, I think eating real food. Um, like one of the things I've, I've learned is like, or tried to learn is actually like trying not to be a garbage gut um, when it comes to racing, but in ultra stuff, like being able to take in and not having so strict parameters that it's like, Oh, I can't eat this. I can't, I can't have this. It's like when you develop a kind of a versatile palate, but having any of that stuff, it's like, you know, whenever I caught my soon to be roommate eating a burrito in the middle of a mountain bike race, I was like, what? That's not what you have. That's what, not what that creepy guy told me in the years past. Like, yeah. but it's like, from that standpoint, like being able to do that is helpful. Um, 
because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff and I think using it strategically because I feel like marketing is, is you know, they want to make money. Not to say the sports nutrition right. products aren't good. They're developed for a purpose, but that purpose is overused, I believe. So it's like I very seldom eat sports nutrition a lot and i actually there's a joke in my Mm -hmm. household called sports nutrition abuse because like you know my (laughs) wife likes gummy products and it's like she would used to get into my like honey stinger like you know blossoms or you know these these chomps or whatever it may be and it was funny because she she got into them once and they were the caffeinated ones and i only like i never eat them except for like i use caffeinated when i race or certain periods when i race and she was all jittery one night and she's like i was like what what is that like i saw the package and she's like oh i just wanted some of those gummies i was like you realize that's like you know those are caffeinated they have amino acids in them and stuff it's not meant to be just taking them in and so it's like now having kids i say the same thing but it's like i try to choose more real foods or like i'd say one trick i guess that a lot of people can use is um or not trick really it's just a, a tactic um strategy is alternating those sports nutrition and somewhat whole food products because what i found is having a consistent source of energy and it kind of depends on the intensity so if it's like short intensity really short duration you probably don't need much like try to simplify it as much as possible but like as the duration gets longer then you can start alternating like sports nutrition like say simple food like um, gummies or gels or those kinds of things with something like you know, whole food, like Enduro bites, like they're, they're here in town and it's, you know, simple ingredients, but Mm -hmm. it sticks with you a little bit longer or even like, you know, waffles, um, those kinds of things that kind of create a little bit more bolus in your stomach to digest from because those, a gel is no different than a a set of blocks and a blocks are no different than a set of like a, a bottle with mix. But the main thing is, is like, I kind of have a rule of three for athletes I coach and it's hydration electrolytes and and calories in that order because you can't take in electrolytes you can kind of take in but they'll dry you out but um you can't take in calories if you're if you're dehydrated it's just not going to work and if you do you put food in your stomach the osmolality's off and it's going to pull more hydration from your system into your gut to try to digest it and you're going to become more dehydrated so no matter what is you always got to be hydrated and it's like you know you'll see sports nutrition things it's like take you only take one of these every 30 minutes or something and it's like there's been times where i've gotten so low in races where i've taken like a gel a bar and gummies all in the same like five minute span as soon as i can get them in because i realized like i went too long i need to yeah i need to get fuel but i was hydrated so it will digest so from that standpoint it's like maybe 45 minutes into a race you have a you know some some gummies and then an hour and 15 hour 30 minutes into a race you have a p- half of a bar and then another 30 or 45 minutes you have you know some simple nutrition again so yeah that's kind of the way that i've seen works for a lot of people is keeps a more stable energy platform no that totally makes sense and that is that is some great advice and i'm guessing there's an element too in that you said earlier you know like eat real food even though uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different like sugar substitutes and whatnot, but like some of those fruit alcohols and whatnot, is it, uh, erythritol or whatever, or yeah, xylitol, erythritol, some of yeah. those that can have that osmotic effect that people that might be trying to avoid sugar, but it turns out that's not necessarily helping yeah. in that kind of scenario. Yeah. I mean, I would say like your body, body burns sugar. So you need sugar and they're like, my wife does nutritional therapy and I'm kind of a foodie myself, um, for, from that standpoint, like know just enough about it but a lot of the stuff i learned in school and in practice isn't necessarily what is healthy because it's maybe funded differently that's another whole rabbit hole but right. um from that standpoint like i think you need 
you need sugar when you're performing at high levels because that's when your body is only not only burning that source but um, a coach I worked under before Dean Gulich um, that I respect greatly had a saying of um, fats burn in a carbohydrate flame so from that standpoint if you don't have enough sugar on deck to go at the intensity you need you're not going to actually be utilizing fat stores which we have a plenty of to fuel right. lots of it but you're not going to be able to go hard enough so most people when they feel that bonk it's not truly a bonk like Mm-hmm. I bet there's a lot of people that think they bonk that haven't like you got to go yeah. pretty extreme to bonk. Um, and uh, there's some people that do bonk because they they're in that mindset of like, oh, I'm trying to lean up. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. eat anything and I'm going to go do this two and a half hour ride. But they're not they're not they don't have a good insulin sensitivity and uh, glycogen utilization enough to where and they go that moderate intensity that burns glycogen at a, a faster rate. So they burn through it and they do bonk. But yeah. then they can't go long enough to get the benefit of the training or the metabolic adaption. So that's kind of this process of like you have to fuel the body to go long enough or you have to be disciplined enough to go low intensity enough to only kind of trigger fat metabolism and, and utilize that. And that is very slow for a lot of people because I've done – I still do some now, but it's like I've done metabolic testing. And that's one thing that a lot of people would be surprised about is like how low – like fat carbohydrate crossover points are and stuff like that. I've, I've coached some people that have had none. Like they're so, they do so much high intensity and eat so much crap. None at all. None. Like, like it's not even like, happening. Like they're, no, they have fat metabolism. But mm-hmm. when you look at it graphically, like it's supposed to look like an X on a chart. Like mm-hmm. as you increase intensity, so increase the in, intensity goes to the right. As you increase up, then fat utilization comes down. So it's a downward slope, sloping and then an upward sloping line for carbohydrate. So, right. um, with all the, I'll skip the that point, but there's a lot of things you can do to shift it farther and, you know, ketosis and low carb, high fat, that kind of stuff. But at a certain point, the physiological term of threshold is when you go over that 100%, 200% carbohydrate metabolism is typically when you go over like threshold or like FTP. Um, yeah. So from that standpoint, it's like, it's an identifiable marker when you, when you perform a test, but there's been some where literally it's like two parallel train tracks, like fat metabolism is here and carbohydrate here. And then carbohydrate only goes up and fat goes down because they're just inefficiently burning fat. And they wonder why, like, I can't lose weight, but they never, they never do the low, low intensity aerobic ride. Um, they always want to do high intensity intervals or they, you know, they're always like thinking I need this next supplement to get me through this workout. So they'll take like a pre-workout thing. That's like jacked with sugar and caffeine. So overly stimulates glycogen utilization from the onset or they start too hard because the thing is, if you know, there's research out there that shows if you, if you prime, I call it priming the pump, but it's like, Mm -hmm. if you go really hard to start an effort, like even just like, too hard on your warm up, not even just in an interval, then it predisposes you to burn like 20 to 30% more glycogen. So it's like, think of a mountain bike start. You're probably oh. going to be, you're probably going to be burning a lot more glycogen than just if you went out and did your normal, like long base ride, obviously you're racing, but that's one of those things is like, you got to be able to go low enough to not, not depend on sports nutrition. Like, you know, you need some aerobic efficiency from that standpoint, because, you know, I can go out and ride for several hours without much food, um, at certain points if I go low enough, but you also have to work on that to be able to have it. That's what probably more people need to do is realize like their, their sensitivities is not sensitivities, but like insulin sensitivity, like Mm -hmm. relying on, on real food a little bit more and, you know, being able to do things like even be, like eat a meal and go out and ride a bike. Some people are like, Oh man, I can't do that at all. It's like, I can eat 
I can eat a, like a big salad with like sardines and stuff on it and go out and like ride right afterwards. And people are like, I would be throwing up. And it's like, well, yeah, I've trained my gut to handle that. And <laughs> yeah. I guess that's 24 hour racing and long duration stuff, but I don't recommend it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a lot of mental notes over here. Definitely oh, yeah, have yeah. to listen back through this. <laughs> uh, some, some hits and misses and on my I, side. There's a couple of those where I have not done the right thing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, re- the thing is like, don't take that. Like everybody's unique. Everybody, that's right. the thing. Everybody's got to do their own thing. And you know that, but that's one thing I see in some of the stuff is like, there's so much media going out now, like Instagrams and, you know, all this stuff where it's like athletes doing like a, one, the one, one that gets me really not riled up is like a low residue diet. So it's basically like you remove all the fiber and all the stuff that you need, like mm-hmm. to have like lose weight before your event and yeah. it works. Don't get me wrong, but they were doing it like, you know, tour riders. And if you're getting paid to do this, like, great, like, you know, eat white rice that doesn't have many nutrients and like take out all the fiber and all that stuff those days before, because yeah, you do have bulk in your system, but there's some people that it's like, if you don't have a normal bowel movement, you're going to be blocked up because you don't have any fiber those days before, like eat what you're used to eating and eat nutrients because those nutrients have antioxidants and all that kind of stuff. Whereas like bleached processed foods. Yeah. If you want to perform for a one day race and your, your paycheck depends on it, like do those extra things. But majority of the time, like eat high nutrient foods. And then that way your body will be able to recover from the work you put in. Yeah. Maybe you taper down the fiber before a hard workout or something like that. So you don't have like issues, but there's, there's probably a crossover there talking about X's. There's probably one there where you, uh, took all the weight out of your bike and then you're just carrying some extra trail weight. If you didn't uh, get any fiber a couple of days before, you yeah. might not be winning. Yeah. Or you might be having to stop that, you know, having some issues the morning of the race. It's like, yeah. I always, always relate myself as like, this probably a TMI moment, but it's like, always relate how well I'm going to do on a given day by based on like how, how easy bowel movements or how many bowel movements the morning of a race, because it's, I always relate people. I'm like, it's kind of like a gladiator moment. Like when you know you're ready to go into the ring, it's like your body like voids itself of what it doesn't need. And it's like, yeah. let's go to battle. So, so like, true. It's like, all right, it was a two BM morning. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of ready, but it was three. Okay. I'm, it's go time. It's go time. <laughs> That's, that can't be the best way to end. Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, so for all that potential misinformation or conflicting information out there, if there are people who do want someone to guide them through all this, Mithini Endurance exists for this very reason. Yeah. Yeah. I do coaching, consultations, all kinds of stuff. Like, um, this has basically been my life for years. And it's like, um, the passion behind it is personal. And, and, you know, I take everybody's results just as personal as mine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the athletes, like, I'll go out and I don't ride with a lot of athletes anymore. But it's like, that's one thing I've tried to do is, like, really get to know the people. And I'm not the coach for everybody. I'll say that, like, usually my process is, you know, it's an athlete's chance to interview me and um, my chance to interview you to see if we job. And if not, then I'll refer you to somebody else. Like I try to have a good network of not just coaches, but other people to say like, maybe you need somebody else. And coaching's not for everybody either. And I'll say that oddly because, you know, I'm a coach, but I want people to, you know, develop that autonomy and be able to answer those if then scenarios themselves. But, um, I think easier than Matheny Endurance. I think we talked about it offline before, but it was the iCoachBadasses.com. <laughs> yeah. um, that was uh, one of the Joe Kraxner, the client I work with, kind of like bought that URL and it's much easier to remember. And I I've truly see that because like the people I work with may not have as may, may not have it as easy as I do. Like my life and revolves around it because it's part of my job. So they're a little bit more of a badass than I think, than they think of themselves because, you know, they have to work through more problems and still work a normal job or do those kinds of things to make it happen. So 
that's probably easier to remember. <laughs> All right. And one one more question before we uh, head off here, but we uh, we want to do a, a best day, worst day theme. Um, oh yeah. Ask anybody who comes on the show. So do you do you have some stories of a best day and a worst day on the bike? Oh man, there's a lot of dark spots. I think, but I I mean. I've probably already disclosed one of the best or the worst was like being an a-hole at the end of that race and cursing and doing that. Um, but I had a decent day. Um, I'd say a a really bad day was at at the firecracker 51 year. Um, I don't know what it was. Like I was working camps and thought I was invincible, like doing a bunch of big rides and went into that. And it was like, could not get out of my own way. Like, luckily for me, I can ride my bike very well. I'll say that. Like, usually I can skate on that. And that was the only thing. But it's like there was another guy that I kind of despised because of some things he'd done in the industry that was a roadie that got into mountain biking that kept catching me. And I just kept passing him on every descent, but every fitness point. Like, I mean, on the first climb up Boreas Pass Road, I got passed by, like, I tried to ramp it up, like, went with, like, you know, the Kona Pro Riders and Giant Pro Riders. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. And then all of a sudden it was like the wheels came off. And it was like every group behind me like past me and a female I coached, I paced her up the road and I mean, she was strong. So to me, my, my expectation is high. So it's like, I was still riding fast. Like nobody would have known I had a bad result that day. It was like 10 minutes slower, but it's like, I felt horrible the whole day, Mm -hmm. but it was like, I couldn't get out of my way. Um, good days. There's so many of them. Like if you're on the bike, it's a good day. So even my bad day was a good day. I had fun descending. So I think that's a mindset piece of it is like, you can always have a good day. I mean, breaking my leg, my first year in Colorado, that was a pretty crappy day, but um, wasn't necessarily, I kind of got out of it. But I'd say good day, and it relates to something recently, because I'm sitting here with like fresh out of surgery, um, had a procedure done on my foot and uh, last week, but it's like I was able to do the Gunnison Growler, and I hadn't done that in like, I don't know, eight or nine years. And I knew what it was, like I'd had some good results there, like top fives in the pro field before. So it was kind of, I knew the expectation of Kill Hill and what it would take to do that race. And I got in off the wait list like a week and a half before, and I knew I was going to have surgery the day after. So I was like, oh man, this is like a last hurrah. But I also had COVID a month and a half ago. So it's like had some weird chest stuff. So I was like zero expectations, but I was like, all right, I'm going to give this thing a go. And that was a good day because I found not racing in two years because of all this stuff that's been going on and just like having a two-year-old kid and a five-year-old like... It was just this rejuvenated, like I connected with you. I saw a bunch of kids that I'd coached out there for Highlanders. Uh, you know, there's a just reunited group of people. And that wasn't necessarily the race, but the race itself was just suffering because I didn't have the fitness, what I knew I had in the past, just getting dropped on all the fitness sections. But it'd be able to claw back and just find my flow and just like get into my head, that, that mindset piece of like, I constantly heard my like industry nine wheel, like clicking. And I'm like, this kept reiterating myself. I'm fit enough to find that flow, fit enough to fit enough to free will is what I kept saying. And I kept hearing that wind of the free will. And I was like, I'm seeing these guys up here trying to pedal the single track and I'm catching them just by free And I'm like watching my heart rate drop. And then they would take off on the long sections. And I was like, all right, this is a good day. I'm reunited with everybody. I'm racing again. And, <laughs> <laughs> just having a good day. That sounds like paradise right there. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing all that, uh, that wisdom and your own story as well. Um, maybe, uh, maybe we'll get to dive in a little deeper on, on one of those aspects or maybe more yeah. nutrition at some point. Oh yeah. There are, there's so many big deep rabbit holes. They could go hours on each one. 
and we would be happy to have that happen. But for today, Daniel, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate being on the show. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.